Luke chapter 24, and we will be reading from verse 13 to verse 27 with a focus on verses 25 through 27. But just to help us with the context, we'll read from 13 to 27. The word of the Lord says this, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cephas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a, mighty, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to, uh, to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we hoped, or we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had uh, even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were, who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. Now for our verses this evening. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, in them, in all, all the scriptures, things concerning himself. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Uh, this is our first session, our lesson in our series titled Christology. And I want to note that um, the majority of these lessons, um, my desire is not necessarily to preach a sermon to you all. Meaning, I'm not. I don't want to take a text, uh, break down the text, exhort the text, and then give the practical implications of the text, uh, which we will do in, in 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 some lessons. But what I really want to do is I want to teach uh, you all um, the various doctrines of Christ or about Christ, about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And if there's one practical implication that that we can take away with, or, or we can walk away with in, in this series, um, it is, the, it is the, the, uh, the saying of Thomas when he saw uh, the risen Lord, that my Lord and my God. Uh, that is, Thomas is, is prototypical for every Christian, um, and we are to confess that very uh, wonderful confession by, by Thomas. When he sees the risen Lord, he says, my Lord and my God. And hopefully after these, these sermons or these lessons in Christology, you will echo the words of Thomas and you'll be able to worship Christ in a way that's truthful and, and right and rightful. Um, 
I think of a lot of times when we when pastors preach a sermon, uh, the congregation gets too focused on the practicalities of the sermon uh, and, and, and what the sermon can do for them and how it helps them. And I think this lesson, um, and I'm already giving you the practicalities of it, uh, what you can walk away with is having a better understanding of how to read the Bible. That's a wonderful practical implication. Um, just like with this morning's sermon, apart from all the practical uh, details that Pastor Antonio gave us, uh, one, one practical implication that, that we are to walk away with and always keep at the forefront of our mind is, hey, we understand the text better. We understand uh, the story of Moses better or uh, Noah better. So I, my prayer for that, or that's my prayer for you. And um, I hope through the, through the rest of this series in Christology, like I said, you will echo the words of Thomas and become more uh, acquainted with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's begin with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, said while preaching on 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, he says this, the old preacher said, don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every hamlet in England, there is a road that goes to London? Question mark. Yes, said the young man. I said the old preacher. And so and so from every text in scripture, there is a road to the metropolis of the scriptures. That is Christ. And my dear brother, your business is when you go to a text to say, now, what is the road to Christ? And then preach a sermon running along the road toward that great metropolis, Christ. And he said, I have never yet found a text that had not a plain and direct road to Christ in it. And if I ever should find one that had, that had no such road, I'd make a road. I'd run over the ditch and hedge, but I would get to my master. For a sermon is neither fit for the Lord, uh, sorry, for a sermon is neither fit for the Lord, nor yet for the dunghill, unless there is a savior of Christ in it. One of the questions that stumps most Christians today is what or who is the Bible about? What or who is the Bible about? It's a simple question that differs on its answers depending on who you ask. For those who practice Judaism, they might say that the Bible is a story about Israel and God's relationship with Israel. Others might say that the Bible is about telling us the story of specific people like Abraham, Moses, Joseph, and David. I've heard some say that the Bible is a story about historical past events like the creation of the world, the flood, and the exodus. To many, the Bible is a daunting book because... Many don't know how to make sense of the Bible. How do we interpret the Old Testament? And how do we interpret the New Testament? How does the Old Testament relate and unrelate to the New Testament? And ultimately, who is the story of the Bible all about? Hey, brother, can you turn the air down? It's getting cold. If it's cold up here, then I know it's cold down there. Great. Um, who is the story of the, or who is the Bible all about? And if you've been at Reformation Bible Church for some months or years, you know the answer to that question already. 
The Bible is about Jesus Christ. The Bible is about Jesus Christ. Or to put it more formally, the Bible is a story about the glory of God through the redemptive work of the incarnate son. The Bible is a story about the glory of God through the redemptive work of the incarnate son, Jesus Christ. And throughout church history, all of the Orthodox have confessed the Christocentric nature of divine revelation. When I say Christocentric, that's a, that's a, that's a, a fancier word uh, in saying, and what it basically means is Christ-centered, that the Christ-centered approach to Scripture, to divine revelation. John Owen said, Christ is the principal end of the whole of Scripture. Owen would also say, the revelation and doctrine of the person of Christ and his office is the foundation whereon all other instructions of the prophets and apostles for the edification of the church are built and whereinto they are resolved. Athanasius writes, the distinguishing mark of our faith in Christ is this, being the word of God and the wisdom of power of God, Christ is, at the end of the age, he became a man for our salvation. Uh, to Athanasius, Christ's work of redemption is at the heart of Scripture. Jonathan Edwards said, Christ and his redemption are the great subject of the whole Bible. The whole Bible, both Old Testament and New, is filled up with the gospel, only with this difference, that the Old Testament contains the gospel under a veil. But the new contains it unveiled so that we may see the glory of the Lord with an open face. John Calvin wrote, whatever the law teaches, whatever it commands, whatever it promises, always has reference to Christ as its main object. And hence, all its parts must be applied to him. William Ames says the Old and New Testaments are reducible to two primary heads. The old promises Christ to come, and the new testifies that he has come. And lastly, Nehemiah Cox says, In all of our search after the mind of God in the Holy Scriptures, we are to manage our inquiries with reference to Christ. From the voices of the past, we see a strong consensus that Jesus Christ is the sum and substance of divine revelation. That the Old Testament presents to us a veiled Christ. And the New Testament presents to us a fully revealed Christ. The movement from the old to the new is a movement from a room that is lesser lit to a room that is fully lit. It's a movement from promise to fulfillment, to type, to anti-type. So saints, in our first lesson in Christology... We want to answer the question that I proposed to you at the start of this lesson, and that is, who is Scripture all about? Who is Scripture all about? And this evening, we'll see how Jesus Christ is the central theme of the Scriptures, or in other words, Christ is the scope of Scripture. Christ is the scope of Scripture. And we'll consider Christ as the scope of Scripture in two points. Uh, point number one the promise of the seed, and point number two, the hope in the seed. Point number one, the promise of the seed, and point number two, the hope in the seed. 
Let's consider our first point, the promise of the seed. And again, uh, my thesis and what we are examining this evening is Jesus Christ is the scope of Scripture. But we have to ask, what does it mean for Christ to be the scope of Scripture? What does that phrase mean, scope of Scripture? And where does that phrase come from, scope of Scripture? Well, let's just break down the phrase. Richard Barcelos says, Reformation and post-Reformation Reformed theologians understood scope in two senses. It had a narrow sense, i.e. the scope of a given text or passage, its basic thrust, but it also had a wider sense, the target or bullseye to which all Scripture tends. It is to this second sense that we will give our attention. Scope in the sense intended here, the the scope that we are talking about here, refers to the center or target of the entire canonical revelation. It is that to which the entire Bible points. What Dr. Barcells is saying is theologians in the 17th century read the Bible through two scopes, but there was one scope that was prominent. They read through a Christocentric lens. They read through a Christ-centered lens, meaning they saw Christ They saw Jesus Christ as the main target in which all special revelation was pointing towards. In light of this, we can say that the writers of Scripture were writing with an intended goal in mind. The writers of Scripture from Old and New Testament were writing with one intended goal in mind. By the supernatural agency of the Holy Spirit, the Old Testament writers of Scripture were speaking of the sufferings and glory of Jesus Christ before the incarnation of the eternal son, meaning they were speaking about Jesus Christ before Jesus Christ stepped on to the scene in the Old Testament. We can also say that the goal or target of divine revelation in the Old Testament was Jesus Christ. He was the centerpiece of Old Testament inspired revelation. And the same can be said about the New Testament goal our target. Both testaments have the person and work of Christ at its center and at its goal. But saints, we have to ask, how do we know that the men of our Reformed tradition weren't opposing something onto Scripture? Dr. Barcelo says that 17th century Reformed theologians read the Bible through a Christocentric lens. But how do we know that their Christocentric lens wasn't imposed upon the Scripture? So we, that's what we always must ask when we come to doctrine and, 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 and those of the sort. In other words, are we saying that Christ is the target and intended goal of divine revelation because it sounds good and we want it to be? Do we want Christ to be the center of revelation? Or does Scripture tell us that Christ is the scope of Scripture? Is it a, is it a, is it a biblical concept? Again, Richard Barcello says, there, we're meaning the 17th century Reformed theologians, their Christocentric interpretation of the Bible, hear this, was a principle derived from the Bible itself. Their, their Christocentric principle of the interpretation of the Bible was a principle derived from the Bible itself. Meaning the Bible is where we get this Christ-centered hermeneutic, 
hermeneutic meaning, meaning the how to exegete and, and break down scripture, the tools you use to break down scripture and interpret scripture. The Bible is where we get this Christ-centered hermeneutic and not from the inventions of men. And mind you, saints, we all, we, we ought to sought to, to get our doctrine from the Bible. Uh, we are never to impose something upon the text that the text does not say. That the Bible does not say. And if we do so, then uh, we are doing what is called eisegesis and not exegesis. We are imposing our own beliefs and our own system of doctrine onto the text when we are uh, uh, taking things and making up things um, that the text does not say. Scripture, saints, informs us of how we are to read the Old and New Testaments. A scripture informs us of how we are to interpret uh, both Old and New Testaments. So we have to ask, where in Scripture do we find this Christ-centered hermeneutic approach to Scripture? Where in Scripture do we find this Christ-centered approach to Scripture? Since the Bible gives us this Christocentric hermeneutic, then where in the Bible do we get this Christ-centered approach to Scripture? Let's look at uh, Luke chapter 24 again. And in Luke 24... We have the recordings of the post-resurrected Christ walking along the road of Emmaus to Emmaus with two disciples. Uh, the two disciples at this point were very heartbroken. They just found out that the body of Jesus is no longer in the tomb. And they might have believed that the body has been stolen by the Roman government. But what was more heartbreaking to these men was that their belief that Jesus Christ wasn't who he claimed to be. That's what made them more heartbroken, uh, more than anything, was Jesus Christ wasn't the, the Messiah whom we longed for, whom we thought was going to come and redeem Israel. Because we thought that he was going to take over our enemies, but our enemies took over him. That's going on in the psyche of these two disciples. He wasn't the promised Messiah. Rather, he was just another martyr. Look, uh, look with me at uh, verse 25 to 27 again, saints. Uh, and he said to them, Jesus speaking, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a glorious passage that we have. Christ takes these men back to the Old Testament. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. But we have to ask, where did Christ take these men in the Old Testament? It says that Christ, it says that beginning with Moses, we have a good indication that Christ took these men to the Old Testament. But where? Did Christ take them to Isaiah 53, the prophecy of the suffering servant? Or maybe he took them to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, the prophecy of an eternal kingdom of God's, of David's offspring. The answer, saints, is neither of those places. I don't believe that Jesus took them to Isaiah, nor 2 Samuel. He didn't begin with Deuteronomy, nor Exodus, nor Leviticus, nor Numbers. But I think it's fair to believe that Jesus took these two disciples to the very beginning. Jesus took these, these two men to the garden. Jesus took them to the book of Genesis. And what does he do there? 
he interprets to them Genesis 3.15. The Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is known as the first gospel. Or as one preacher has said, God is the preacher and Satan is the congregation. God tells the serpent that a seed will come. And we know that seed whom God is referring to is Jesus Christ. The seed of the woman is Jesus Christ. The coming of Jesus Christ, hear this, wasn't a New Testament concept, but has its roots in the beginning of creation. Christ, although in seed form, is spoken of in the Old Testament. And here in Genesis 3.15, we have the thesis statement of the entire Bible. The rest of the Bible saints will be the outworkings of the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. All subsequent revelation saints serves to unfold this redemptive plan of salvation. Saints, the skull-crushing seed of the woman is the lens in which all revelation after will be riding through. It's the promise. It's this promise by our Lord of the skull-crushing seed of the woman uh, that shined light after darkness. And it is this light of the promised seed that the Holy Spirit will use to inflame the pins of every inspired writer of Scripture. It's because of Genesis 3.15, we can echo the words of James Hamilton as he says this. This is very wonderful. The Old Testament is a messianic document written from a messianic perspective to sustain a messianic hope. It's a messianic document on its own terms. Written from a messianic perspective, the skull-crushing seed of the woman, to sustain the messianic hope of that skull-crushing seed of the woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent. That's wonderful. Meaning the Old Testament saints was written from a Genesis 3.15 perspective to sustain the Genesis 3.15 hope of the skull-crushing seed of the woman. Listen to the words of John uh, Selhammer. He says this. This is wonderful. The messianic thrust of the Old Testament was the whole reason the books of the Hebrew Bible were written. In other words, the Hebrew Bible was not written as the national literature of Israel. It was probably it was probably also uh, was not written to the nation of Israel as such. It was rather written, in my opinion, as the expression of of the deep-seated messianic hope of a small group of faithful prophets and their followers. What Selhammer is saying is the Old Testament wasn't primary about Israel and God's relationship with that nation, nor was it written to and for the nation of Israel primarily. Rather, it was written to those who hoped and believed in the skull-crushing seed of Genesis 3.15. Saints, the Old Testament, on its own terms, that's, that's really important to write down and to remember. The Old Testament, on its own terms, apart from the New Testament, is about Jesus Christ. Apart from the New Testament, is about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament did not become about Christ in Luke chapter 24. 
Meaning, the Bible didn't start becoming about Christ in Luke 24 when Christ said all scripture is about him. But rather, it's about Christ because that was God's intention since the beginning. It was God's intention since the very beginning for the entire scripture to be about Jesus Christ. When Jesus said all scripture is about him, he wasn't saying anything new. He wasn't saying anything foreign to what the prophets of old knew. Christ saw the Old Testament through the lens of himself. Christ saw the Old Testament through the lens of himself. So saints, to summarize this point, what we've learned is the Bible is about Jesus Christ. Jesus says that all scripture points to him. Therefore, we must read the Bible through a Christocentric lens. We must read the Bible through a Christocentric lens, but also a Christotelic lens. We must have Christ as the center, but also Christ as the target, the goal, the end point, the omega point. In order for us to read the Bible as Christ read the Bible, then we must have a correct view of Genesis 3.15. As it's been said before, if you get the garden wrong, you get everything wrong. John Owen would also add to that, if you don't read the Bible through that Genesis 3.15 messianic lens, then you can't make sense of the Bible. The Bible doesn't make sense if you do not see Genesis 3.15 as a messianic prophecy and on its own terms, a messianic document. And what, we, and what we've seen in this point, saints, is Genesis 3.15, this is really important to remember, Genesis 3.15 sets the stage for how the rest of the Bible will play out. Genesis 3.15 sets the stage for how the rest of the Bible will play out. In other words, all Revelation post-fall will be the outworkings of the promised seed that will come and crush the serpent's head. So let's consider the second point, the hope of the promise, in the promise, the hope in the promise. We've seen uh, the promise of the seed, now the hope in the seed. Now, what I want to do in this point is build upon what's previously, previously been argued. Um, again, let's look at Luke chapter 24, verse 25 to 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Again, we've noted that when Luke says, beginning with Moses, it's fair to assume that Christ takes these men to Genesis 3.15. That's fair to assume that. And what Christ does there is he interprets to the, for them uh, how Genesis 3.15 was speaking of himself. Christ is the promised skull-crushing seed of the woman. But saints, we have to note that when Luke says, beginning with Moses, it's not as if Christ simply took the two disciples to Genesis only. We must not think that and we must not impose that upon the text. We must not think that the risen Lord take, took these men to Genesis 3.15 and simply left them there and simply said, I am the promised skull-crushing seed of the woman, and now it's up to you to read the Bible through a Christocentric lens and a Christotelic lens. But when Luke says, beginning with Moses, that must also mean 
that Jesus took these men to Genesis 3.15 and then to the re- or throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Mind you, Moses did write Genesis, but also wrote Exodus. He also wrote Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. So when it says beginning with Moses, we must assume that Christ takes them to the first five books of the Bible and then onward. In other words, first Christ shows these men how Genesis 3.15 was speaking of him. And then he shows these men how the entire Old Testament was speaking of him. He cracks open the entire Old Testament and he shows them how all of, of the Old Testament prophecy and revelation was speaking of him. Again, let's look, listen to the language of Luke 24. Hear the language. Verse 25, Christ says, O foolish one and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Which is, which is I believe, he's alluding back to Genesis 3.15, but we'll get there. And then look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Christ not only interprets these men, uh, these men, the words of Moses, but he interprets for these men the words of all the prophets. And what all the prophets spoke of was this one message, the sufferings and glory of the Messiah. Saints, in the Old Testament, there are various themes that we are introduced to. We're actually going through one right now. There is the theme of creation. There's the theme of covenant. There's the theme of temple. There's the theme of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. But here in Luke chapter 24, verse 26, the major theme of the Old Testament concerning Jesus Christ was the sufferings and glory of the Messiah. Again, look at verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Was it not necessary? Christ is shocked that the two disciples were unaware of the sufferings and glory of the Messiah. Why? Because the Old Testament plainly teaches this. In other words, these men should have known this. They should have known of the sufferings and glory of the Messiah. It was necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter into his glory because that is what was prophesied in Genesis 3.15. And that is the theme that runs throughout the entire Old Testament. You might ask, how does Genesis 3.15 speak of the sufferings and glory of the Messiah? Again, Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Maybe you haven't caught caught it yet. Notice when God says in Genesis 3.15, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a clear description of the sufferings and glory of the Messiah. What God is saying is there will be a seed from the woman that will come that will gain victory over the serpent, thereby enter into his glory, hence the bruising of the head. But the way he will gain victory and enter into his glory is through suffering, hence the bruising of the hill. The bruising of the hill speaks of the sufferings of the Messiah. But the bruising of the head speaks of the victory and thereby in, in the Messiah entering into his glory. 
In other words, not only does Genesis 3.15 present to us the Messiah, but also the person and work of the Messiah. Genesis 3.15 provides for us the context of Old Testament prophecy. All Old Testament prophecy will be written through this lens of the sufferings and glory of the Messiah. The bruising of the heel will be Christ's suffering, and the bruising of the head will lead to Christ's glory. In, other, in Christ's view, what the main subject matter of the Old Testament was the sufferings and glory of the Messiah. That is why he says, was it not necessary that these things should happen? And this theme of the sufferings and glory of the Messiah is what all the Old Testament prophets prophesied of. It was prophesied that the Messiah will be a perfect sacrifice in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. It was prophesied that the Messiah will be despised and rejected by men in Isaiah 53, 3. It was prophesied that the Messiah would be abandoned by his closest friends in Psalm 31, 11. It was prophesied that the Messiah would be silent before his accusers in Psalm 38, 12. Zechariah 12, 10 speaks of the crucifixion of the Messiah. And you can read the servant of the Lord passages in Isaiah 42 and 49 and 50 and 52 and 53. And you'll see how the prophets speak of how the Christ must suffer. That's not something that they dreamt up. And that's not from their own imagination. But they are building upon, by the supernatural agency of the Holy Spirit, Genesis 3.15. The bruising of the heel of the promised seed. But just as the prophets of old spoke of the sufferings of Christ, they likewise spoke of the glory of the Messiah. Psalm 68.18 speaks of the ascension of Christ. Psalm 118, verses 17 through 18, speaks of the resurrection of Christ. Daniel 7, verse 14, speaks of Christ entering into his glory. Saints, time doesn't permit us to walk all the way through every portion of Old Testament scripture. But, su but suffice to say, there is a clear theme in the Old Testament. It is clear and plain by the Old Testament prophets that this Messiah, who will come, must suffer, but his sufferings will not be the end of his life, for he will gain victory over the serpent and enter into his glory. Richard Gaffin puts it nicely when he says, for Jesus and the New Testament writers and the Old, uh, or again, for Jesus and the New Testament writers, the Old Testament was one large prophetic and promissory witness to Christ. A diverse but unified. That's so important. A diverse but unified witness that centers in his sufferings and consequent glorification. And I think that is a good summarization of this point and what I'm trying to get across. And that is the great subject matter of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. He is the target and center of divine revelation. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 25 to 27, Jesus shows us that the way Christ saw the Old Testament, the way that Christ saw the Old Testament, was one prophetic and promissory witness to himself that centers and has its target in his sufferings and glory. Christ saw a continuity within all Old Testament prophets in which they preached and prophesied of himself. Although there are many different writers of the Old Testament, they all echo 
and spoke of one person and had one message, the sufferings and glory of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can say that the writers of the Old Testament were writing through the messianic lens of Genesis 3.15. And all subsequent revelation is building upon the sufferings and glory of the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. And friends, this, this is what gave all the Old Testament saints hope. The sufferings and glory of the Messiah is what was promised to the Old Testament faithful. This Messiah that would come and suffer but conquer the enemy of sin is who the Old Testament faithful believed in. In some Christian circles, there's been much debate over how people were saved in the Old Testament. How were people saved in the Old Testament? One might ask, how can people believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament if the eternal Son of God had not yet taken on human flesh to live, die, and rise for his people? How can you believe in the finished work of Christ if Christ hasn't even took on his work? It doesn't make any sense in the Old Testament. Consider the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, hear this, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Meaning the gospel is not a production of the New Testament. The gospel did not begin with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but the gospel predate or precedes Jesus appearing in history. The gospel was preached in the Old Testament. On its own terms, the Old Testament, apart from the New Testament, spoke of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And here Paul says the main difference between the gospel under the Old Testament and the gospel under the New Testament is this, saints. The gospel under the Old Testament was preached by way of promise. And the gospel under the New Testament was preached by way of fulfillment. But it's the same gospel. There's one gospel. There's, there's one way to the Father, and that is Jesus Christ. Our confession of faith puts it nicely in chapter 8, verse paragraph 7. Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation, yet, hear this, the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages. The benefits of Christ were communicated to all the elect before Christ's incarnation, life, death, and resurrection. It goes on, successfully, from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices, wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, being the same yesterday and today and forever. Chapter 11 of paragraph 8 in our confession says, the people under the Old Testament were justified the same way people under the New Testament were justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. The prophets of old preached Christ and him crucified, but in promised form. And those who placed their faith in the promised seed 
received all of the benefits of Christ's future work of redemption. Why? Because it was a guaranteed work. It was a guaranteed work. Adam and Eve believed in that promise. Abel believed in that promise. We're going through it now and we're seeing how Noah believed in that promise. Abraham believed in that promise. And it's important to note, saints, that those men and women who believed in the promised seed did so apart from written special revelation. They didn't have the Old Testament. They couldn't read Genesis 3.15, but they knew about it. They couldn't read the book of Exodus, but they knew about it. Those who placed their faith in the promised seed. In other words, this is by Richard Barcelos, Abraham and others believed in the promise of Christ prior to Moses and scripturation of that promise. That's wonderful. And that's important to note. Richard Barcelos also says, and this is also wonderful, though it is true that neither Testament was intended to stand on its own. It is also true that the Old Testament, while, uh, while it was on its own, the Old Testament, while it was on its own, witnessed to Christ, contained the saving knowledge of Christ, and hear this, produced believers in Christ. The Old Testament contained the saving knowledge of Christ, it witnessed to Christ, and produced believers in Christ. That is important to note because there are some that argue that Christ isn't present in the Old Testament. Peter Enns, Dan McCarthy, they would say that in order for Christ to be the center and target of the Old Testament, then one must read the New Testament and then read Christ back into the Old because Christ isn't plainly there. In other words, for, in order for the Old Testament to be about Jesus Christ, uh, one must read the New Testament and then hear this, then reimagine the Old Testament around Christ. Reimagine the Old Testament around the person and work of Christ. But saints, just because Christ isn't fully revealed in the Old Testament, as he is in the New, doesn't mean that Christ isn't present in the Old at all. If Christ uh, if is not spoken in the Old Testament, then how were any saved in the Old Testament? Consider the words of Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15. This is a wonderful uh, passage here. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which were, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you caught that, but Paul says from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Paul's not speaking of the Old Testament. He's speaking of, of, of the, I mean, he's not speaking of the New Testament. He's speaking of the Old Testament. The sacred writings that Paul is referring to is the Old Testament scriptures. And he says those Old Testament scriptures are able to make one wise for salvation of Jesus Christ. Meaning the Old Testament on its own terms presented the person and work in Christ, but in promised form, but in, but in a, but in a form that was appropriate to its era. Jesus Christ, though veiled, was present in the Old Testament through promises, types, and shadows. And if you want a good example of that, listen to this morning's sermon. Uh, I think it's the second point, the second subpoint, uh, uh, talking about Abel and him being a type of Christ. So in closing, saints, 
What we've gathered from this session and this lesson is the way we are to read the Old Testament is through the lens of Jesus Christ. The target and center of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must interpret the Old Testament. Therefore, the way we must interpret the Old Testament is through the Messiah's sufferings and glory. Uh, for that is how Christ and the New Testament writers interpreted the Old Testament. How did the New Testament writers interpret the Old? Through the Christocentric lens of Genesis 3.15. The Old Testament on its own terms spoke of the sufferings and consequent glory of Christ, which means the primary focus of the Old Testament was not Israel, was not Abraham or Moses per se, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I end this lesson with one last quote from Richard Barcelos. The Old Testament both assumes and builds upon the, the, the New Testament both assumes and builds upon the Old Testament. The New Testament writers were interpreting the redemptive historical acts of God in the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ, something the Old Testament predicted. As one reads the New Testament, one will find not only is the Lord's, uh, not only is the Lord its central figure, but our Lord and the writers of the New Testament viewed him as the central figure of the Old Testament. In other words, both Testaments find as their centerpiece the Son of God and his person and work, either as promised in the Old Testament or as fulfilled in the New. And we can end, therefore, we can say that Christ is the target, the goal of Scripture, or the target and the goal of Scripture. Therefore, he is the scope of Scripture to give all glory to God. Let's pray.